Some have uh, come up and said, hey, are you the guy that was here a couple months ago or however long it's been? And it's true. And if you were starting to get to know each other, so please feel free to do that. Just come up and introduce yourself. I'm not saying I'll remember your name, but we'll give it a shot. We'll try and do that. Uh, it is really good to be with you here this morning. And um, I know I'm just going to drop a couple names like Linda Van Voorst. I had her when she was in junior high and high school. It's crazy, you know, to think about. But I also know she comes from good stock, and so when Ken says she's the greatest, I'm, I'm in agreement. I think so, too. Uh, this morning, we uh, come to worship, uh, realizing that for 2,000 years, this probably has been, a, the, the Sunday before Easter has been recognized uh, significantly as Palm Sunday. And I don't know how, how closely Antioch or you and particular follow that church calendar, but it's a big thing for me, a big thing for my family to be involved, and especially as we get to this last week, Holy Week. What I would also say is that um, there are places in Scripture that have legitimately beyond normative kinds of experiences shaped me. I don't know if that's true for you. A place in time where somebody taught something or you read or you were personally in devotion with God and your Bible or, or some kind of a book and uh, God bored into your heart and said, you know what, I'm giving you something here that's going to be significant for the whole of your life. There are a couple of places in Scripture where that's occurred for me. This is one of them. So if you have a Bible, and if you don't, it's okay, because I'm going to read the passage anyway. But if you do, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Now, in the book of Luke, um, we could read about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is part of this big story that God has been um, telling through his word. We're reaching the pinnacle of the story, really and truly. It's crazy, but if you were just to stop and look at the Bible, it's a fascinating book. There are four chapters, four chapters in the Bible that speak to the idea of the world being a perfect place. In fact, it describes the world in perfection in two chapters, the first two and the last two. And everything else in between is not perfection. Now, God created it in perfection, and there were some things that went awry. And we read how he takes that beginning, that perfected living circumstance of humanity, and humanity has a difficult time in understanding that and eventually sins and goes against God and rebels. He takes that picture and says, uh, I am going to restore this to perfection. I'm going to redeem the whole thing. And you have that two chapters on either end bookending this entire story of humanity and and humanity's interaction with God. It is the grand narrative. Today, people will use the term meta-narrative to try and explain it. It's big in our culture today to talk about a big story. This portion of the story this morning is the pinnacle. We're coming down to that moment in time when Christianity, as a belief system, is going to separate itself from every other belief system for time and eternity. 
every other prophet or guru or religious leader is going to be differentiated from this one, Jesus. And it's very exclusive. It's a hard thing. I think I'd like to come back and listen to the series that Ken will preach on on belief in an age of skepticism. Because it is a part of our culture right now. It's a hard thing. You may be sitting out there going, yeah, I just don't know if I buy in to Christianity. And I can appreciate that. It's a difficult message. It's hard to hear. This morning, though, we're going to hear it from the perspective of the disciples meeting with Jesus for the last time. The last time he's going to pull his little band together and talk to him, and he's going to do it with a meal. And this particular scenario has shaped me significantly. Let me read, beginning at verse 14 of Luke 22. Jesus has already entered Jerusalem. There's been a whole week of activity. We're getting down to the last few days here of his his, uh, physical life. Beginning at verse 14, and not sure what translation you're using. I'm using the New American Standard, which I know is old school, but I'm old, so I get to do that. Verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I'm going to leave it right there. It's a mouthful. It's a lot to look at this morning. It is leading to this pinnacle of the faith when Jesus will indeed be handed over, tried, and crucified, eventually to rise again on Easter morning. I want to make some observations to try and set the scene and then watch as it crescendos to the last two verses that I read. And hopefully, 
with the Spirit's help, we'll be able to hear this for ourselves. We'll seek that this morning. So a couple observations just as we get started. Jesus meeting with his disciples at a meal. And he says, I've longed for this meal, to eat this with you. I've longed for it before I go to suffer. Food is a big thing within my family and probably a big thing within culture generally. Uh, we, uh, as a family, are, are dialed into this, this season, this Lenten season. So, to a great degree, a bunch of my family is involved in fasting. But we reserve Sunday, we reserve Sunday to break the fast and to corporately worship the risen king. So it's six days of uh, denying ourselves some pleasure and on uh, that seventh day making room for great joy. Eating a meal together is bonding. It's significant. It is a part of human life. And Jesus says, I've longed to do this before I go to suffer. He, looking forward to what's going to happen. Now, it's not like the disciples haven't heard him talk about this. He's mentioned it multiple times now that he's going to suffer and he's going to die. But they're having a hard time buying into it. However, um, in the process, Jesus declares that there are a couple of things that he's going to do on into the future. One of them is that he's going to fast. If you just look at your Bible really quickly... You'll see this, um, verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat, I shall never again eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He'll repeat the phrase even as he takes the cup. For I say to you, verse 18, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Just as we set the scene, it's significant to see that Jesus does place a high importance on the meal that's occurring and the one that will occur. This is difficult to do, but what does the one that will occur? Do, does anybody know what that is? It's, it's referred to in Revelation 19, but it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the moment when Jesus will then be reunited with all who believe, who will sit down at a table and enjoy a feast. That day is coming. Do you believe that? In Isaiah 25, we get a picture, Isaiah paints a picture, of this feast. I find it fascinating, and I love to read it to my family. They probably get really bored of it, but this is something that I hold on to in my own life. Listen to this out of Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe, away tears, will wipe tears away from all faces." And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. 
Jesus is trying to paint a picture and he's saying to his disciples, we share this meal together and there's going to be another meal. In fact, in perfection, when I will sum all things up, I'm going to sit down with you at a banquet. Do you ever think about what that future looks like and does that bring any buoyancy to your faith today? I've got to tell you one private story here from this week. As I was driving, I have a brother that lives in Prineville, so I was driving over this morning, and this came to me. Uh, I, I have listened to the story a couple times this week, and um, I find it shocking. The six-year-old grandson, his name is Isaiah, and he is um, deep into the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, he's got a father and mother who read to him incessantly, and uh, I personally... Uh, had the pleasure of being back there for a week. They live back in Kentucky, and just, just last week was back there with them. And I know all about the books and everything that's being read to him. And, and he can read much of it as well. I'm not saying he's a brilliant kid, but come on. No, I'm just kidding. The uh, interesting thing is that the, the week that I was just back there, he has Narnia on CD, and he's listening to the audio. He listened to to three whole books when I was back there. A six-year-old sitting and listening to these books. It just is amazing to me. He's weird, but he's listening and absorbing all this. Well, we get uh, we get back to Vancouver, and there's a couple that's in uh, our church that has a daughter who's about three years old. And she's having a very difficult time speaking and being communicated to. And, uh, and in fact, last week went to OHSU to check her hearing because they're pretty well convinced she can't hear. It's crazy, but her dad is a music professor. And he's played music to her his whole life, and they're pretty much reaching the realization that she hasn't heard any of it. And that um, it's, it's been very difficult, and they're finding out the results to all that soon. Well, um, the appointment last week was mentioned to my daughter over the phone by my wife and uh, just said, yeah, and and my daughter and son-in-law know this couple, Ben and Tara, and their little daughter, Ella, one of two daughters. And so they're telling the story, and Isaiah walks into the middle of the conversation, and he says, "Uh, who are you talking about? And they explain, this is is Ben and Tara. You remember Ben, he taught you how to play the drums and... Uh, you know, Isaiah had interaction with that family for a couple years when they were out here on the West Coast. And, and he said, oh, yeah. He said, what's wrong? And they explained it. Ella probably can't hear, and she's going in to figure out if that's really true or what's going on. And Isaiah just stops, and he looks at his mom and dad, and he says, um, well, Ella will have all of her hearing uh, in the new earth. Well, that's shocking enough, but the next sentence is, I'll bet you, coming from his lips, that her mom and dad, that that causes them to long for the new earth even more. Six years old? It's my daughter's texting it to my wife. My wife is bawling. I I am listening to it thinking, how old was I when I came to that realization? Talked to my son, and he goes, I was in college. It took me to college to understand that. Interestingly enough, Jesus, in sitting down with his disciples here, 
is legitimately saying, I need you to look forward, and I'm going to fast till we get there. I need you to look forward. I'm going to go to suffer. There's going to be some difficult things that come down the pike. But I want you to understand that there is a future, that history is for real, and we're going somewhere, and that feast is on the horizon. So he institutes this meal, and he says, this is my body that I'm going to give to you. They couldn't understand it at the moment. And this is my blood. This cup represents my blood. Well, this is a promise sealed in blood. That's what Jesus says. It's a poignant moment. In fact, what I would say is it's a holy moment. It's one of those times when everybody just kind of stops and understands that it's sacred ground we're standing on. Significance is being born in the moment. I've had my share of those times. I've, I've been in the ministry for a little while. I spent a lot of time in youth ministry. And I can remember striving hard to create the opportunity for one of those moments to exist. Maybe once or twice a year with a youth group. And the truth is, God was faithful and he gave us those moments. But much like your experience and my experience, those holy moments can be interrupted rather dramatically. And this one is no different. That holy moment is interrupted with some words from Jesus. Listen to this, verse 21. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And just in the flash of a second, Jesus changes the whole dynamic and says, I am going to be betrayed. Now, all I'm trying to do this morning is set a scene for you to say, can you feel the up and down ride of the tension for the disciples? Can you feel it now? Jesus promising them, Jesus wanting desperately to be connected emotionally, he's going to suffer. I think it's pretty easy for us to understand Jesus as God. We get that in this day and age, some 2,000 years later. It's harder for us to understand him as a human being. And here's a picture of what that looks like. Jesus now overcome with the grief of betrayal. A holy moment interrupted. Just a thought. Look at verse uh, 23. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this. Do you find that verse intriguing? I find it very intriguing. What makes it intriguing? These guys didn't know who the betrayer was. What does that say about Jesus and this pinnacle moment? What's it say in your own heart that none of his disciples knew who the betrayer was? Did Jesus know? For a while, he knew. Do you think if you knew your betrayer, you could hold it in secret? Do you think you could love equally, even the betrayer? This morning, we will see at this pinnacle an unveiling of Christ. And here is a true moment of unveiling. Christ loves all equally. 
And in an age of skepticism, you need to hear this. His love is open to the skeptic. His love is even open to the betrayer. So much so that the disciples don't know who it is. They can't figure it out. They're distraught. So that holy moment is interrupted, and it's interrupted with Jesus' own understanding of betrayal. But there's another uh, interruption coming. And this one's much more classic, and it's the one that occurs within youth groups uh, all the time. Something breaks out with the group. Look at tw- verse 24. And there, are also, uh, there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. You're pouring out your heart as the leader. You've told them that you're going to go and suffer and die and that you want to share this meal and this moment with them. And here's the response. Which one of us is going to be the greatest? It's classic. I was thinking this morning, even as I was pouring over the passage a second time, that I heard this phrase before. And uh, at, at my own church, I was able to preach the Sunday that we started into Lent. And I used a passage out of Luke chapter 9 where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. It's kind of the marker for the, for the final uh, chapter in Jesus' earthly life. Well, in doing so, I I went back to 9, and earlier on in the passage, it it declares that the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus gives a truth statement there and tries to reorient them and say, hey, listen, i got a different value system for who's going to be great. And he backs them up there, and you'd think, well, they'd start to get it. But we get right to this holy moment, and they're still not getting it. And I think, yeah, this is me. This is me. I can be in the most holy moment possible and find it not to be captivating enough and to bring up an issue in my own life that I'm struggling with. I'm not here to beat myself up or to beat you up, just to point out reality. Here is the pinnacle moment, and we're still pretty much focused on ourselves. It's hard. We come to church wanting to celebrate, wanting to declare that God is for real. But we spend a good portion of our week questioning whether or not that's really true. Is that true? It's okay, you're among friends. Jesus sees you. He sees these guys. He's not afraid of your doubts. He gets it. Yes, it's true. We struggle to believe that God really is there. And someone will come along and say, well, you just need faith. And we'll think, well, that's great. I'm just going to will that up, some faith. I'm going to white-knuckle this thing. It really doesn't make sense, this Christianity. It's an exclusive kind of thought. I'm supposed to believe in something I can't see. It sounds crazy to most people around me. A fantasy land. So I'm going to try to have faith. Does that work well? How's that working for you? That's pretty tough. In this moment, you can see the tension. It comes out. These guys are all caught up with who's going to be great. Well, Jesus goes into a little teaching session. Who's going to be the greatest? The fascinating thing to me is that he's going to give some instruction, and the instruction is good. Listen, my value system's different. Greatness is not going to be based upon who you are. 
It's going to be based on who you serve. I'm flipping the boat upside down. The value systems are flipped. So it's the youngest. Now, why would he say the youngest? Well, in that day and age, and in that culture, being young was looked down upon. It, it was uh, young people were left for the menial tasks. They were left to do all the dirty work, and age was honored. I don't know if that's still true today. Maybe it's flipped. Maybe it's flipped in, in our culture to some degree. But Jesus is trying to make a point and now saying, listen, this is, you're going to have to look at this upside down because that's the way I'm looking at it. So you're going to have to learn from me. We don't see it in Luke's gospel, but if you go to John's gospel, same moment in time, it's right here that Jesus gets up from the table, takes off all of his clothes, wraps a towel around his waist, and washes all their feet. Think about that moment. So he goes on to say, so, so who's the greatest? The one being served or the one serving? And you're getting this picture from the other Gospels that Jesus has just washed all their feet. It's a rhetorical question. They know the answer, and he's just laying it out there for them, saying, look at me. I'm the one who's come to serve, not be served. This is how you define greatness. But that's probably not the most fascinating thing to me. The most fascinating thing to me is his encouragement. Because if I'm in the holy moment with my team, and they don't get it, and they start breaking out in an argument, I, I can pretty much bet what my reaction's going to be. You lousy so-and-sos. What are you thinking? Here I am pouring out my heart to you, Letting you know that here's what's going to happen, and you're ignoring it all. And you're arguing amongst yourselves. That would be my response. Can't you see I just put it on the table? I'm bleeding. And you're arguing. But that's not what Jesus does. Look at verse 28. He says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. That's what he says. What trials is he referring to? Not future, but everything that's occurred for the last three, three and a half years. They have stood in there with him through all of those difficult times as they followed him. And people have decided not to follow him. And people have set up themselves against him as enemies. And he encourages them. The God of the universe turns to them and says, but you have stood by me. That's not what I would be thinking. It's crazy. But that encouragement is, is what we need to hear this morning. What Jesus says is, I believe in you. You may not believe in me, but I believe in you. Isn't that crazy? This is why it's the pinnacle of the whole story. Jesus is making the declarations here significant for us to see a gospel, to see really good news. There's a point to your life. We're not caught in a vicious circle. There's a banquet at the end of this thing. History is going somewhere, and I believe in you. And that's what he says to the 
the church here, to Antioch and Bend. But the moment, the real truth moment for me in the shaping event happens right now. Look at verse 31. See if we can identify this. Jesus changes the subject then dramatically, and he says, Simon, Simon. Simon is Peter. And Peter is the lead apostle. How do we know he's the lead apostle? John says that he's the one that was most loved by Jesus, right? Peter, James, and John are pretty close, but if you were just simply to go back and look at the number of times that uh, Jesus talked to Peter, you'd see he talked to him more than anybody else. Now, the reason may be that Peter was always stepping in it, okay? And Jesus is always trying to correct and encourage and, and, and pull up. But at any rate, Jesus changes Peter's name. Peter makes a confession of faith to Jesus up in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asks the question, who do people think that I am? And they give him a bunch of names, uh, John the Baptist, Elijah, whatever. And then he turns to the disciples and says, but who do, you th- who do you think that I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, my Father revealed that to you. And you, Peter, rock I'm going to build my church. That's what Jesus declares to Peter, and he changes his name. But not here. Not here, Jesus reverts back to Peter's given name, Simon. Why do you suppose? Well, there is a moment coming here, a significant moment, and he uses his original name twice and says, Simon, Simon. What Jesus is referring to is, you think that you're a rock, but you're not. There is a moment coming for you, Simon, that is most difficult. Let me read the rest of this verse. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I'd actually take an answer from the crowd. Do you, have you heard this kind of phrasing anywhere else in Scripture? Job. Yeah, Job. You turn back to chapter 1 and 2, you'll find Satan, the enemy of God and the enemy of the people of God, walking into the throne room and saying to God, I want to take a shot at Job. Give me permission. What does God say? Righteous man, take your best shot. Don't touch him, though. No physical stuff. Don't touch his body. You remember the story? Everything gets taken from Job. Everything. His family, his business, his livelihood, all of his stock. Everything is taken from him. To the point where his wife is ready to say, you just need to curse God and die. You are in really bad way. God has removed everything. But he doesn't falter. He stays true to God. Satan comes back in in chapter 2 and says, let me take a swing at him physically. And what does God say? Yes. And boils and all kinds of weird stuff happens to Job. 
It's the same kind of story. Now, why would Satan be doing that at this moment with Peter? It's fascinating, but Luke gives us probably the best picture. Back in chapter 4, Jesus is out in the wilderness, and Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And you know the story. He tempts him three different times. But when Jesus doesn't take the bait all three times and faces the devil down, Satan moves away, and the scriptures say uh, to reserve for a more opportune time. Conserving energy for a more opportune time. I'm slipping out the back door, but I'm coming back after this guy later. And this is the moment. Now, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, but he's orchestrated what's going to occur this week. He's in the mix, and he knows that Jesus is going to be executed. Does that make sense? Okay, so he's, he's got that one rolling. But he also knows that Peter is legitimately the main guy connected to this movement that Jesus has established in its infancy. And he knows it. And he's saying to God, let me take Peter out. Let me take him out, and you'll watch the whole house of cards fall. So I'm demanding permission. What's the most fascinating thing about the whole statement? I don't know what it is for you, but it, what, this is what it is for me, and it's shaping for me. Jesus acquiesces. Permission granted. Think about that for a second. What does that look like for you and me? You ever been sifted? Do you know what sifting is? Sifting is just uh, taking wheat, cutting it, and trying to get to the kernel, the smallest little piece and how holds all the, uh, all the energy that we use for food. It's just trying to get that separated from everything else. And in those days, they'd bring it into a threshing barn, and it would be a kind of a circular barn with wood slats, and they'd hook up oxen and have this big... Uh, dredge that they would drag behind and pile all the wheat in there and they drag this on big spikes that would knock the heads of wheat off the shaft and the heads of wheat would fall down through the cracks and a good portion of the chaff or the stock would stay up top and the oxen are trotting on it and this big rake is coming around and knocking the you know what out of it the wheat falls down to the bottom and there would be workers down there with the sieve and with that sieve they'd scoop up what was left of the wheat and toss it in the air and work it. And what I think of here in terms of a spiritual uh, metaphor, if you will, is that the sieve has got these sharp wires and jagged edges that is trying to get the wheat kernels to fall through and the chaff to stay on top. And what actually is happening here is Satan is asking permission and he's saying there are holes in the sieve the exact shape of faithless people. And watch this, Jesus. Peter's got no faith. And he's going to fall right through. Those are the holes. And he's going to work this thing pretty dramatically. Sifting is a harsh process. And Satan doesn't care if you're rich or you're poor, or you're healthy, or you're sick. 
He can use whatever's in your life to sift you. You may be in a very bad way this morning and feel like the world is crashing in on you. Or you may be very wealthy, have all that you need, and still feel the sifting. What does the sifting look like? It looks like doubt. It looks like unbelief. It's like, I just don't think I can buy into Christianity. I have some questions. I have some severe doubts. That's what Satan is going to press into Peter. And you know the story, right? Peter is going to deny Christ three times. He is going to fall away that night. Jesus will go on to actually tell the story here in the next part of the chapter. So Satan says, I want to sift out your faith. The enemy of God seeks to destroy you. So that's the moment for me. Because I know what that feels like. Someone very close to me, known all my life, four years older than I am, seen a lot of pain in his life, a lot of pain, been through drug abuse, and alcohol abuse, and all kinds of things, but last 24 years, clean, sober. This last year, though, went off the deep end. His wife of 23 years divorced him, lost the house, lost his job, DUIs, no license, 57 years old. Sat across the table from him. He believes, but he said to me, hey, Luke, you've got to answer this for me. God loves me. Then why did all this happen? Why did he let me burn all this down? God really loves me. How would you respond? Dude, you got choices. You just made bad choices. You didn't have to choose those things. Well, there's a measure of truth there. Do you think that helps in the moment? No. You know what that feels like. You feel hopeless and helpless at both sides of the table. What do we say? What can you say? This is the sifting. It's not like God isn't aware of all that, bro. He knows all that. Well, here's Jesus' response to Simon. Well, let this one go, Simon. It's coming. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Can you hear that? Here's the truth of the statement. The God of the universe prays for you and me. The God of the universe prays for you and me, makes intercession for us. Not you or me praying to him, but him praying for us. That's what the scriptures say. This is the pinnacle moment. This is the good news. Jesus turns to Satan and says, Hey, Satan, knock hell out of Peter. 
Take the rock and pulverize him. Strip everything away, all of his pride, anything that he's got. Because I'm going to tell you what you're going to find at the bottom. You're going to find a seed of faith that I planted there. And I've wrapped my hand around it. And you cannot have that. That's mine. Don't believe me? John 10, 27 to 30. Read it for yourself. Jesus says, you're in my hand. Actually, you're in my Father's hand, and nothing can take you out of my Father's hand. This is the pinnacle moment. God intercedes. You can't, Satan, have what is mine. And when you know that, Peter, when that dawns on you, then turn around and tell your brothers. Strength for others will come from our own understanding of the gospel. Not our ability to defend, but what God has given to us personally and an understanding. So what has he said to us this morning? There is a banquet for all those who believe, and it's coming. Set your eyes towards that. I believe in you, so much so that it's me who plants faith in your heart, and no one can take that away. Because I have placed it there. It's not up to your white-knuckling willpower. Take a deep breath. Understand that I am the one who sustains your faith. I keep you. You will see the story played out to its end next week, Easter. Here's the, just the, the trailer in front of that. Jesus with his crew at this dinner telling them the truth. May God this morning allow you to own that in your own heart. Can I pray for you? Father, I do thank you for your word and for what you have given to us. We are yours. We lay claim to that completely. In fact, we cling to that this morning. I do. I don't have anything else. I thank you for children like Isaiah who can see it now. I pray that I would have that childlike faith. We would have it. And that we would be strengthened and tell this story to anybody who would hear it. For Jesus' sake and for his glory alone. Amen.